Okay, welcome to episode two of Reign of Blood, the true story of the epic clash between the Aztec and Spanish empires. My name is Peter Mayado, and in episode one, we did a general survey of all the different civilizations in Mexico that existed on the eve of the arrival of the Spanish, up to and including all the different groups that made up who we have come to call the Aztecs. We also provided a detailed portrait of the landscape of central Mexico, particularly the Valley of Mexico with its system of lakes and various city-states and ethnic groups that dotted the lakeshore. I encourage all of you to listen to that episode first if you haven't already because it sets up the next two episodes where we will dive deep into the origins and the rise of one particular group of Aztecs, the Machica, who were the dominant group of Aztecs when the encounter with the Spanish gets underway in 1519. We originally planned to cover the Machica in one episode, but there's just so much information about them that we needed to split it into two. So rather than a single hour and 25 minute long episode, the kind of thing only Dan Carlin can really pull off, you're going to get two 40 minute episodes. In this episode, we'll discuss the origins of the Machica and how they saw themselves within greater Aztec history and society and how they overcame some difficult physical and political obstacles to establish themselves inside the very crowded valley of Mexico. This first part will take us to the year 1425, and then in episode 3 we'll pick up the story there and follow the Machica on their astonishing political ascent as they came to dominate the other, more powerful Aztec city-states, and then eventually all of central Mexico, in under 75 years. Lastly, I just want to remind everyone to follow along the website at intellectualbrutality.com where we'll post maps and photos and other content to accompany each episode, including this one. And so, with no further ado, here is Episode 2 of Reign of Blood, The Rise of the Machica, Part 1. What unites people? Armies, gold, flags, stories. There's nothing in the world more powerful than a good story. Nothing can stop it. Fans of Game of Thrones will recognize that clip from the series finale, the speech delivered by Tyrion Lannister to the gathering of the noble houses of Westeros. The long war had just ended and the coalition that won the war disintegrated when Queen Daenerys was assassinated, and so it was left to Tyrion to try to rally the other nobles to agree on a way forward for the Seven Kingdoms. That show was fiction, of course, but Tyrion wasn't wrong. If you look across history, you can see how important these stories are about the origins and the rise of civilizations to so many different groups of people. There's one origin story in particular, though, that seems to keep popping up with only slight variations. Tell me if you've heard this one before. A tribal, pastoral, or otherwise nomadic group of people living in relative obscurity on the fringes of the civilized world for centuries suddenly explode onto the historical stage. And then... Inspired by their god or united by a charismatic leader, or maybe both, they make a journey or an invasion of some kind into a region they believe has been promised to them by their god. 
And then, over a relatively short period of time, they establish a great civilization of their own and come to dominate the world around them. This is a powerful story indeed. So powerful, in fact, that it's the story that multiple people tell about themselves. This is the origin story of the Arabs and of the Jews. It's the story of the Mongols and the Ottoman Turks. And with just a little bit of tweaking, it's also the story of the Macedonian Greeks and the Manchurian Chinese. And it's the basis for the story of the Persians under Cyrus the Great as well. But many of you might also be surprised to learn that it's also the story, wait for it, of the United States of America. Think about it for a second. What's the story that we tell ourselves? A group of colonial outposts on the fringes of the British Empire come together and throw off the yoke of the oppressive king 3,000 miles away and establish a new nation based on freedom and democracy. And then, as if ordained by God, our people spread out across the continent to fulfill the manifest destiny and build a single unified country from coast to coast that came to dominate the world in under 200 years. The history is much more complicated than that, of course. It always is. But you can see how potent a story that is and how tempting it is for people to really see themselves that way. And so it should come as no surprise to anyone to learn that this is exactly how the Mexica, a lowly, uncivilized group of Aztecs who came to dominate their world just a couple hundred years after founding their city, saw themselves. And more importantly, it's how they wanted everyone else to see them as well. It's tempting to think that some neutral historical authority somewhere looked at these situations objectively and concluded for all time that, yes, absolutely, that's how it happened. But if we're honest, the reason so many of these similar stories exist is because that's the story these people choose to tell about themselves. And when you look at them critically, as archaeologists and historians do, you find that these stories all usually contain a kernel of history, but that the history plays second fiddle to the myth and the outright propaganda. These stories are not designed to impress people 500 years later with their accuracy and their objectivity. They're crafted to legitimize their own existence, or to connect them with the wider trends of the history of the region, or to unite them under a common cause, or all three. And because these people usually go on to win, at least initially, that's the story that gets told and retold, and after a few generations, it just becomes fact. At least the people telling these stories hope it becomes fact. The Machika in particular went to great lengths to make this origin story fact. The way they tell it, they were the great underdogs of the Aztec world, a group no one respected or even liked, who nevertheless built their city on terrible land no one else wanted, and who had no connection to the great civilizations of Mexico's past like the other Aztecs had, or at least invented. But they were inspired by a promise from their god, and in just a couple centuries they came to dominate the region generated tremendous wealth, and made their city the core of the greatest empire the continent had ever seen. And since Aztec history in many ways ended after the clash with the Spanish invaders, it's this Mexica version of their origin, and of Aztec history generally, that we've been left with. The Spanish were not interested in refining or tweaking the Aztec origin myth. They simply tried to wipe it out. They were all heathens and needed to be saved and needed to be Hispanicized and incorporated into the new Spanish empire, and what they were before didn't matter. 
Only later, as archaeologists dig deeper, did these origin stories come to light. And it was these Machika versions that they found. And just like the story of the Jews and the Turks and the Arabs and the Macedonians and others, it's a story filled with myths and legends and also propaganda and a little bit of divine intervention. And we'll point these things out as we go because they're central to understanding the Machika identity, even if they're not 100% fact. But we're going to start with as objective a narrative as we can, based on what we know, a.k.a. based on what historians and archaeologists have been able to prove, or at least corroborate. As we covered in detail in episode one, the Aztec origin story tells of seven Nahuatl-speaking tribes with roots in the legendary land of Aslan, somewhere to the north of the Valley of Mexico, where modern-day Mexico City sits today. One by one, over the course of about 200 years, these groups leave Aslan and migrate south and settle in and around the Fertile Valley, an area which had been the center of great civilizations going back many centuries. The Mexica were the seventh and final Nahuatl-speaking tribe to leave Aslan, and they followed in no particular order the Kulhua, the Tepanex, the Akolhua, the Xochimilca, and the Chalca, and the Tlaxcala. Each of those groups entered the valley and built or were admitted into existing cities along the lakeshore. The one exception were the Tlaxcala, who entered the valley but were driven from the lake region and founded their own city a few dozen miles outside the valley to the east, as we covered in episode one as well. This mythical land of Aslan has never been found, and archaeologists and historians aren't 100% sure it existed. But both history and archaeology are in agreement that there was this period of migrations of Nahuatl-speaking nomads, people today we call Aztecs, who came from somewhere in north-central Mexico into the lake region of the central Mexican highlands in a series of waves that began around 900 AD. The Machica were the last of these tribes to make this journey, and they arrived in the Valley of Mexico sometime after 1200 AD. But when they got there, all the good land was already taken by the other groups we mentioned. The Machica also found cities in the valley that traced their roots to before the arrival of the Aztecs, to a time when the somewhat mysterious but revered Toltecs ruled over the valley from their capital at Tula, not far outside the lake region to the northwest. By the time the Machica arrived in the middle of the 1200s, the Aztec groups that preceded them had turned the valley into a Nahuatl-speaking region that mixed their own traditions and institutions and artistic and architectural styles with what we can charitably call a cheap imitation of the glorious Toltec past. As each successive wave of Nahuatl speakers arrived in the valley, the groups already settled there saw them as wild and uncivilized, their gods and their religious practices crude and unsophisticated, and their mannerisms unrefined and warlike. Even the early arriving Aztec groups like the Kulhua and the Akolhua saw the later waves of Aztecs this way. While the Machica were apparently the most barbaric, the most warlike, and the least refined of all the Nahuatl speakers that preceded them, they were Aslan trash, lowborn, bottom caste, pick your term. While it's hard to know for sure how much of this part of the story was invented or embellished, it's not hard to imagine how one group of immigrants can look down on later groups, even those that come from the same place. We see that all the time today, unfortunately. Immigrant groups achieve some success in a new country. Their kids integrate. Their grandkids may not even learn the old ways. And then when a new wave appears, the connection is gone from the earlier groups, 
as is any sense of empathy for the new arrivals. One thing that's interesting about the Machica, though, is that they seem to have worn their barbarian roots as a badge of honor throughout their rise. Over time, they did what the others did and tried to copy Toltec culture and art and religion and everything else, even trying to marry into families with Toltec lineages, real or invented. But right into the events of the conquest, when the Machica are masters of all of central Mexico and their empire extends into Central America and to the Gulf Coast and is creeping into Maya territory in the Yucatan, even after all of that, they still proudly or at least candidly consider themselves sort of half-Toltec, half-barbarian. The word they used was Chichimec. And they celebrated both almost equally. We know from codices found by archaeologists that this was exactly how they saw themselves, depicting themselves with ancestors that were both noble Toltecs, but also barbarian Chichimecs. That's a little different than the other groups who couldn't shed the stain of their Chichimec origins fast enough and rushed to be as Toltec as possible as quickly as possible. That tells us a lot about the Machica character and how they saw themselves relative to other Aztecs. They had a chip on their shoulder, almost like an inferiority complex they tried to flip on its head and use to their advantage. And this inferiority complex, for lack of a better term, comes into play over and over again, as we'll see. As you'll recall from episode one, the Valley of Mexico was quite large, but most of the base of the valley was covered by a series of lakes. And so the only really suitable land for cities and for farming was this kind of narrow ring that went from the lakeshore up into the foothills of the mountains that surrounded everything. And by the time the Machica got there, the earlier groups had taken up most of this land from this narrow ring around the lake. So that was problem number one for the Machica when they got there. Problem number two was nobody liked them. After they arrived in the lake region, they wandered around the lakes looking to settle in or near one of the cities that dotted the shore, but nobody wanted to take them in. They eventually settled on some land near the Tepanec city of Tlacopan, on the western shore of Lake Texcoco, on and around a hill called Chapultepec, which today has the same name and is the anchor of Mexico City's great urban park. The Tepanecs didn't exactly welcome the Machica, but they didn't remove them either because the land was terrible. It was marshy, the water smelled, and it was infested with these grasshoppers most of the year. In fact, the word Chapultepec means grasshopper hill in Nahuatl. And so the Tepanecs let them have it for a while, and the Machica provided soldiers for the Tepanecs when they would go to war with neighboring city-states. But at some point, the Tepanecs went to war with the city of Culhuacan and the Culhua people. And the Mexica decided they would ally with the Culhua rather than the Tepanecs. So naturally, the Tepanecs forced them off of Chapultepec, and the Mexica moved to another part of the lake near Culhuacan that was also swampy and marshy and snake-infested. Not exactly an upgrade, to put it mildly. Prospects for the Mexica at this point did not look very good. Nobody wanted them. There was no good land left in the valley, and opportunities outside the valley were also thin. They made do with eating snakes and algae and mosquito larvae and turtles and other little critters, but this wasn't sustainable. They needed arable land where they could plant corn and other crops, and they needed a secure site to build their own city, their own altepet, if they wanted to survive as a people. They had none of those things. But they did have one thing going for them at this time that would soon become apparent to everyone around the Valley of Mexico. They were excellent warriors. Ferocious warriors, in fact. 
Individually, they were brave and vicious, but they were also organized. And over time, they developed their own tactics and were absolutely feared on the battlefield, even in these early years. This, more than anything else, is what separated them from the other Aztecs, at least at this early stage. The Kulhua were their primary benefactors at this time, but they made alliances with the Xochimilco and the Chalco and others, and each time there was a war, they proved themselves on the battlefield. One Kulhua king was so impressed with their prowess that, after a particular campaign, he married one of his daughters off to the Machika chieftain as a reward. We're coming to a point in the Machika story now where the myth is going to take over the history a bit. According to the legend, as the Machika themselves told it, their god, Huitzli appeared to this chieftain in a dream or a vision and commanded him to sacrifice his new Kulhua wife in his honor. Not only that, Huitzli told him to hold a great feast in honor of his father-in-law, the Kulhua king, and at the feast, a priest was to perform a special dance for the king, wearing the flayed skin of his daughter like a cloak, face and all. The chieftain, being a good servant of Huitzilopochtli, did what was commanded, had his wife sacrificed, and had her flayed, and her skin turned into a cloak. He then threw the feast for the Kulhua king, and as you can imagine, the king was mortified when he saw the priest dancing in his daughter's skin. He promptly expelled the Machica and declared war on them. But this was all part of Huitzilopochtli's plan, according to the legend. The Mechica chieftain had another vision, and this time Huitzilopochtli, pleased with him for following his earlier commands, promised the Mechica a homeland as a reward. But he didn't say exactly where it was. They weren't given directions or coordinates on a map or anything. They weren't even given any landmarks. All that Huitzilopochtli told the chieftain was that the Mechica were to wander around the Valley of Mexico until they saw an eagle perched on a cactus eating a snake. And when they saw that sign, they were to build a city on that spot. And if they did that, Huitzilopochtli would protect them and usher them to greatness. Well, sure enough, they went about wandering around the valley for a bit. And then an eagle was spotted, perched on a cactus, eating a snake. And as most of you know, the eagle perched on a cactus eating a snake is the national emblem of Mexico today, all these years later appearing prominently on their flag and on the national seal and every kind of pop art you can think of. But there was a catch. This sign from their god didn't appear on a nice plot of land on the lakeshore, but out on one of the swampy islands in the middle of Lake Texcoco, which would become the foundation of the great city of Tenochtitlan. According to tradition, the city was founded on March 13, 1325, though Archaeologists believe it was a little bit later, maybe 1340, 1345. There were two natural islands, in fact, that formed the heart of the city. They were ideal in some ways. First and foremost, the lake provided the perfect defense, acting like a massive moat essentially around the entire city, allowing the Machica the vital time they needed to grow their city without any real fear of a siege. They had experience living in the marshy lands of the lakeshore, and so they'd gotten pretty good at harvesting the small fish and cactus and snakes and mosquito larvae and other stuff like crickets and algae that we talked about. But the site also had significant problems, as you can imagine. First, their supply of fresh water was limited and unreliable. 
Lake Texcoco was the largest of the lakes, as you'll remember, but the depth varied quite a bit, and so the salinity fluctuated all the time depending on the currents and the seasons and the rainfall and all of that that we mentioned in episode one. The islands that would form the core of Tenochtitlan were situated in the western half of Lake Texcoco, near the point where the fresh water from Lake Xochimilco flowed into it. But the deeper eastern half of the lake, where the water eventually settled, was much saltier and not suitable for drinking or farming. So as long as the currents flowed from west to east in Lake Texcoco, the Machica could collect enough fresh water to survive. But there were certain months of the year when the currents went from east to west, pushing the saltier water into the waters around the city, making it unusable. The islands were also low-lying and flat, which meant they were vulnerable to flooding when rains got heavy or snowmelt from surrounding mountains was higher than normal. This would be a constant problem through the early decades of the city. Last, but definitely not least, these islands were not very large. The two natural islands combined were about the size of Central Park in New York, maybe, just to give you an approximate visualization. That's enough for an ancient city for sure if you're talking about housing and public spaces and temples and all of that. But remember, a city needs a lot of things. It needs forests for wood and quarries for stone and room for light industry and sanitation and ports and roads and other infrastructure. The natural islands had no space for any of that on the scale that would be needed. In the short term, this meant everything had to be imported from the lakeshore, which meant working with the cities that controlled all of the land and access to resources there. After water, the most important thing a city needs is a steady and reliable source of food, especially cereal crops that can be stored between harvests. And for that, you can't rely on trade. You have to be able to produce that stuff yourself, especially when you're a group like the Machica and you're not very well liked by your neighbors. They could easily just stop trading with you if they ever decided you needed to be subdued. But embedded in each of these challenges the city faced lied the keys to the Machica's future dominance. To overcome the lack of resources, they had to learn to become great traders and develop institutions and relationships and financial tools and shipping infrastructure and all those kind of things that would eventually make Tenochtitlan the beating heart of a vast trading network that covered all of Mexico. And it's this trading network that would, in time, become their primary source of wealth. To overcome the lack of water and the city's tendency to flood, they had to become great civil engineers. There was institutional knowledge from the other Aztec cities that they could draw inspiration from, as well as achievements by the Toltecs and previous civilizations that held lessons about how to build and harness resources in the region but they would need to advance that knowledge significantly if they wanted to solve the unique problems the lake presented to their island city. Little by little, though, they acquired the know-how and the technology and the experience to build not only monumental pyramids and temples, but some of the longest aqueducts anywhere in the world at the time, bringing fresh water over land and over the surface of the lake into the city itself. In the 1400s, they built a 10-mile-long dam made from wooden frames like wicker that were then filled with stone and earth to separate the eastern, saltier part of the lake from the western freshwater portion. And this wasn't just like a simple earthen dike. This dam had a series of gates that could be opened and closed as the currents and the rain required. This allowed them to control both the level of salt in the water around the city and the water level itself solving both the flooding problem and the salinity problem in one shot. 
there was nothing like this anywhere in the world at the time. And to solve the problem of limited land, they mastered the technique first employed by their early benefactors in Culhuacan and later Xochimilco and Chalco, that of building artificial islands they call chinampas. Only the Machica built chinampas on steroids. To those two decent-sized natural islands, they added dozens and dozens of artificial islands, some as large as two football fields or football pitches for any non-Americans out there. When the Spanish first saw them, they described them as floating islands, but in reality, they were built up from the lake bed. The lake was relatively shallow around Tenochtitlan, maybe 10 to 15 feet deep on average. And so they were able to use rows of tree trunks pounded into the bed of the lake to create the outer barriers of these islands. And then inside of them, they would pile up layers of earth and mud and stone, and every so often they would add a layer of reed mesh for stability. And they would repeat these layers until it popped up above the surface of the water. And then they would compress it all down and add more to make sure it was solid and level. For chinampas that were to be used for agriculture, they would add fish and other vegetations to the upper layers, creating incredibly fertile farmland that yielded four or five or more harvests a year. You'd be lucky to get two harvests a year from your typical well-irrigated field on the lakeshore, just for comparison. The Machica also did something kind of interesting. They laid out the chinampas systematically in orderly rows with water left between them, so not only did they get more land, They got an efficient and scalable inner-city transportation network of perpendicular canals, essentially for free, just by spacing out their islands a certain way. This made moving people and goods around the city and from the city to the lakeshore extremely easy. It also meant they could organize the city into nice, neat quadrants on a grid with the sacred central precinct right in the middle of the entire city. By 1475, just 125 years after its founding, Tenochtitlan would grow to over 200,000 citizens. By the time the Spanish arrive, it may have been closer to 400,000 citizens. That's roughly the size of ancient Rome at its peak, according to most estimates. That means they had not only enough artificial islands to build houses for everyone, but enough chinampas to feed everyone not to mention all the light industry and institutions and infrastructure we talked about that allow a city of that size to run more or less smoothly. And to tie all of the islands together, the Machica built wide causeways along the city's east-west and north-south axes. And then they extended those causeways going north, south, and west over the surface of the lake all the way to the lakeshore. That meant you could be standing in the central sacred precinct and take one of three roads to a city on the lakeshore. You could go west three miles to Tlacopan, north four miles to Tepeyac, or south six miles and hit Coyoacan or Iztapalapa. By comparison, Venice didn't build its causeway connecting it with mainland Italy until the 1930s. Tenochtitlan had three long causeways by the middle of the 1400s. They built these causeways the same way they built the Chinampas, with these rows of timbers hammered into the lake bed and then piled up layers of reed and earth, and they left gaps in the causeways at regular intervals so that the flow of water throughout the system of the lakes wouldn't be obstructed too much. Over these gaps, they built drawbridges that could be raised at night or during times of war as an extra security measure. But the Machica didn't stop there. As their empire would grow later into the 1400s, these causeways would be plugged into a large network of roads that spread out all across the empire and reached the Gulf of Mexico to the east, 
in the Pacific Ocean to the west and the south, and then south and east all the way to the frontier with the Mayan world. Now, these weren't quite Roman roads that many of you may have heard of that were paved and drained and had tunnels and all of those bells and whistles, but they were still quite effective and well-maintained and well-marked. They would eventually feature rest stops every 12 miles or so when there wasn't a city there, and there were couriers stationed at each of these rest stops who would run at marathon speed between the stops carrying messages, and then they'd hand them off to another team of couriers who'd go on to the next stop or city. And in this way, they could cover 100, sometimes 150 miles or more a day. This allowed them to get messages between Tenochtitlan and the furthest reaches of their empire in a matter of two or three days tops, which was tremendously fast for an ancient civilization without horses. This network of roads would prove to be too good, in fact, because the Spanish were able to use them both to advance and maneuver, and, crucially, to retreat at a key moment in the war. It also allowed Cortes to rush to the coast to deal with the Spanish force that was sent to arrest him. More on that in a later episode. The important point here is that the Machica built all of this from literally nothing but a couple of swampy islands out in the middle of a shallow lake. And they did it in only about 150 to 175 years. They may have wanted everybody else to believe that their god, Huitzilopochtli, had promised them this greatness and had guided them to it. But in reality... It was their own ferocity on the battlefield that first brought them into the good graces of some of the other important city-states. It was their own mastery of civil engineering that helped them turn a couple of swampy islands into a great city. And it was their own merchants who were able to establish relationships with other city-states so that vital resources could be imported. Trade, defense, civil engineering. These were the three pillars of Machica domination that they themselves were able to develop. And when you think about it, those are the three things any civilization needs if it's going to survive and thrive. Their ability to use all three at the right times and in the right combination were the keys to their success. To me, that's a much more powerful story, and it explains how the Machica were able to do what they did in such a relatively short period of time. Sometime not long after the founding of Tenochtitlan, a few decades maybe, a small group of Machica decided that they didn't like the direction the Machica leadership was taking for some reason. That reason is lost to history, but it was serious enough for them to break off and form their own separate city-state on the northern third of one of the two original islands, and they added a couple of smaller islands next to this as well. This was the birth of Tlatelolco, the same Tlatelolco we talked about to open this podcast. Now, these Machica from Tlatelolco were still Machica, and they remained connected to the rest of Tenochtitlan both physically, economically, and culturally for most of the duration of this period. So whatever the conflict was, it wasn't so serious that the two groups stopped working together. Tlatelolco would have their own king and their own nobility, for example, but sometimes Tlatelolco nobles would rise to become important officers or generals in the empire, up to and including emperor. So there's this interesting push-pull dynamic between the two city-states the entire time. I think the best comparison for this dynamic Tlatelolco had with Tenochtitlan is the dynamic Brooklyn has with Manhattan and the rest of New York today. People from Brooklyn are New Yorkers, right? They're one of the five boroughs of New York City, same government, all the roads and the subways and utilities and everything else are all integrated. The Port Authority is the same. In all the ways that really matter at the end of the day, Brooklyn is part of New York City, right? But because of their history... And because of the East River separating them from Manhattan, and because 
Manhattan just over that river was where the wealth and the power and the action was for most of that history. It gave Brooklyn an identity that's part little brother, part independent outsider. So much so that even today, some 120 years after the two cities formally merged, there's still a large amount of pride about being from Brooklyn that's distinct from their identity as New Yorkers. That was Tlatelolco. They were Mexica. They were connected to the Mexica capital, Tenochtitlan, in all the ways that matter. But they had their own identity, and crucially, Tlatelolco was the site of the great Tlatelolco market, which would grow to become the trading hub for the entire Aztec world. What the Grand Bazaar in Istanbul was to the Ottoman Empire, or what the entire city of Venice was to medieval Europe, or what the Khan al-Khalil in Cairo was for the Islamic world under the Mamelukes, that's what the Tlatelolco market, the Yanguis in Nahuatl, was for the Aztec Empire. And it was massive by all accounts, taking up an entire giant plaza and many of the surrounding streets and alleys. It had its own government of 12 judges who would settle disputes, set standards, regulate the space, and maintain order. And the fact that we know so much about this market tells you how important it must have been. From descriptions of it, it appears you could have found anything from across the known world there, from luxuries to everyday staples to even some of the most exotic industrial items you can imagine. As those of you who are familiar with this story are aware, when the Spaniards first arrived at the Aztec capital, they were welcomed and treated as guests by Moctezuma. A number of them got the equivalent of a tour of Tlatelolco market. Here's how Bernal Diaz del Castillo, a Spanish conquistador who wrote probably the most well-known and highly regarded account of the conquest, described the market when he and the Spanish first saw it. Quote, when we arrived at the great plaza they called Tlatelolco, the like of which we had never seen, we were amazed at the number of people and the amount of merchandise to be found there, and at the good order and control that everything had. The leaders who accompanied us pointed things out. Every kind of merchandise was to be found here, and they had laid out a place for each. To start with, there were vendors of gold and silver and precious stones and feathers and cloaks and carved things. And I say that they brought as many slaves to that market to sell as the Portuguese bring from Guinea. They brought some of them tied to long poles by means of collars around their necks so they would not escape. Others were left loose. Then there were other merchants who sold coarser clothing as well as cotton and cloth made of twisted thread. And there were chocolate vendors with their cacao. This way one could see whatever kind of merchandise was to be had in all of New Spain. New Spain being their name for Mexico. And it was all laid out the same way it is at home at Medina del Campo, where they have fairs where each lane has its own kind of merchandise. Only here it was in the great plaza. And let me mention the fruit vendors and the people selling cooked things like maize porridge and tripe, all in their own places. Then there was every kind of crockery made a thousand ways from great basins to little juglets, each in their own sections. And also the vendors of honey and molasses and other confections that they made like nougat, End quote. He goes into much more detail describing vendors selling tobacco and obsidian and tortillas, what the Spaniards called maize cakes at first. He even describes merchants who sold dried human dung for different industrial uses and how it was collected, among other things. And then he starts to wrap up by saying, quote, But why do I waste words describing what was sold in the Great Plaza? For I shall not finish if I recount everything in detail. 
It is tiresome trying to mention all the things that were sold there, for there were so many different kinds to see and ask about that, given how huge the plaza was and how full it was of people and stalls, in two whole days it could not all be seen. The Tlatelolco market remained an important hub of trade and commerce well into the colonial era, and today, 500 years later, this entire neighborhood in the modern city is still a massive outdoor swap meet style market called Tepito Market, with block after block of sidewalks and alleyways and plazas consumed by vendors and covered stalls and storefronts selling everything from cheap electronics to religious paraphernalia to bootleg DVDs and jewelry and knockoff designer goods and amazing street food. You name it, you can find it at Tepito. Since the market was the dominant institution and trade was the primary source of wealth for Tlatelolco, most citizens of Tlatelolco likely made their living in some way related to the great market. If you were from Tlatelolco, in other words, it's likely you were a merchant, or maybe you ran a guest house, or provided entertainment to merchants, or perhaps you sold or leased boats, or slaves, or porters, or baskets, or pottery that merchants would use. Maybe you facilitated loans or you rented space for merchants to store their wares. Whatever it was, I think it's safe to call Tlatelolco a trading society. And like trading societies all over the world and all throughout history, they were likely more tolerant, more worldly perhaps, less chauvinistic than the other Mexica and Tenochtitlan. Because you have to be, right? I'm speculating a bit here, but I think this could explain the central difference between the two groups. The Mexica from Tlatelolco were dealing with merchants and customers from all over the known world, and they were sending their own merchants out into that world, and so they were exposed to a lot more people, and they had to learn how to do business with those different groups of people. That creates a different outlook on the world around you than, say, farmers or priests or warriors or nobles who live off their estates, and whose only regular contact with outsiders is as soldiers fighting wars or diplomats pressing a grievance, or collecting tribute for the emperor, or maybe buying slaves from different city-states. And so Tlatelolco and Tenochtitlan developed together, but separately. And these differences sort of stick around throughout the remainder of this part of the story. It's mostly a harmonious coexistence because the market was such an important source of wealth for everyone in both cities, and most importantly, for the emperors in Tenochtitlan, who reaped the tax revenue. But every once in a while, things would get a little testy when, say, a king or an emperor from Tenochtitlan thought the Tlatelolca were enjoying their independence a little bit too much. Or maybe a chief from Tlatelolco thought that the Nocha were trying to bully them into one initiative or another. Usually these sporadic tensions got worked out, but at least once it led to an all-out war in 1473. As you'd expect, the much larger Tenochtitlan crushed Tlatelolco pretty quickly, but they don't seem to have imposed any punitive measures other than some tribute payments, according to one source. And in short order, the relationship resumed more or less as it had been, with Tlatelolco maintaining a certain degree of independence and their own king and nobility and their role as regulators of the great market, but still fully integrated into the affairs of Tenochtitlan. The important point here is that going forward, as power slowly becomes centered and more concentrated in Tenochtitlan, and the island city comes to dominate Aztec society and the economy and everything else, know that the Tlatelolco are riding shotgun the whole time. And in every way that matters when we say Tenochtitlan, 
we mean Tenochtitlan and Tlatelolco together. The early decades of Tenochtitlan's growth coincided with the rise and the peak of the Tepanecs as the dominant power in central Mexico. And as we mentioned in episode one, some historians refer to this period as the era of the Tepanec Empire, which means their influence likely extended outside the Valley of Mexico to some degree, which was the first time Aztec culture and institutions and armies and everything else began to project beyond the lake region. The Mexica were witness to this expansion, and their troops continued to impress on the battlefield in service of the Depanex and others. This also facilitated the expansion of their trade networks, which were becoming more and more important. There are a lot of small wars and alliances and different Mexica kings with different accomplishments and innovations that take place over the next 75 years that we won't go into too much detail here. But needless to say, the Mexica sort of figure it all out through trial and error and civil engineering feats and their ferocious soldiers and their expanding trade network, they grow their island capital into a formidable city. They're still the newcomers among the other Aztecs, still regarded as rough around the edges and lacking prestige and all of that. But by 1425, they have established themselves as players in the region. They may not have been fully respected by the other Aztecs, but they were definitely a political, commercial, and military reality that those other Aztec city-states had to deal with, whether they wanted to or not. And as we'll see in the next episode, the Machica were just getting started. Episode 3 will be out soon.